It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Terry's Talking, everybody. Boy, Terry, things can change quickly, can't they? I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, joined as every week by Terry Pluto, award-winning sports columnist and sports writer. Um, Terry, we can talk about your book now, right? It's You've gotten some copies in. and Yes. Um, Vintage yeah, Browns, right? Vintage Browns is, is, is out, uh, not in the stores quite yet. That'll be another week or two, but uh, we have some out finally after all kinds of food food chain supply chains any kind of chain you want they're all broken and um i've been posting it on twitter and that but if you i think you've googled vintage browns you'll see i think amazon will have some next week available it's a lot of fun it's a book basically browns of the 80s early 90s um and just kind of some of my favorite players that i've liked some a couple of modern guys i threw in there tim couch phil dawson uh, and if you like that series I did about guys when they were drafted, that was the impetus for it. So I signed a thousand of them to start. David Gray, I know that just we just announced it a few days ago. They've sold over 400 right away. So uh, they're getting more in. I'll sign more. And uh, the tough thing this time of year, they won't be like normal book signings and things like that as in the past. So uh, we got to, like everything else, we're doing it differently. Yeah, well, it'll make a great present for anybody you need to get a present for this holiday season. So keep an eye out for Vintage Browns. And that comes on the heels of Vintage Cavs, which I know was received really well. Yes, this is they're, on the they're same both vein, a lot so. of fun. Yeah, it's a nostalgia thing. and um, But I think this book will have much wider appeal just because the Browns are, especially that era now, when you look back at the Browns of the late 80s, uh, that still was the, you know, the last great era of Cleveland Browns football even though there was no thing to the Super Bowl for four straight years. I mean, they just really, you know, were terrific. So, um, so here we are. I was hoping we'd be entering into another period like that. And perhaps we will, you know, after the 11 and five, I was thinking, boy, you got three or four good years in a row with this team, but we'll see. Well, I was saying at the top, like how things can change so dramatically in yeah. one week in the NFL. And last week we were talking about like the Browns remaining schedule and how they're going to position themselves mm-hmm. for the playoffs. And then they go out Sunday against the Patriots. And th- there were foundational questions raised there. Like, does do Kevin Stefanski and Joe Wood still have the ear of this team? And and the players are calling for adjustments. And is, is Baker Mayfield the quarterback of the future? Like, why can't they throw the wide receivers? Like it, it went from 
being, um, you know, analysis of one game to just some some big questions being raised about this team. Where do you stand on all this? And I know you wrote a column about column about Stefanski, this yeah. being his biggest challenge. But what do you what do you think of all this? Well, there's so it's like there like you said, there are so many questions because they are five and five. A year ago, they were eleven and five. So the fact is, they've already lost as many games as they did last year. The nice thing about that eleven to five, along with the victories last year, they never lost two in a row. So when they would have periodically. I think they lost 38 to seven in one game, 38 to six or something in another. Then they would come back and win a couple of games. So you say, all right, it's just a bad game. Um, where these guys this year, they started three and one. If you remember that, and the only loss was to Kansas City. So you said, oh, well, okay, especially early in the year. Um, that didn't seem to be any disgrace. And it was a close game. They played hard. And then since then, they're two and four. Um, in, even before Odell, I was not a big Odell fan, as, as you and many of the people know, but uh, that weekend where he was placed on waivers, I wrote a very long story and like the problems are much deeper than Odell Beckham and looked at like they were at that point leading the league in uh, pre-snap penalties and just a bunch. They were second in the league and giving up touchdown passes uh, is it's, it's kind of like where they talk about how statistics could lie. The stats were actually kind of lying on the defense, you know, how good it was. Uh, and it, it's just crazy. One week they score 41 against Cincinnati. Then they give up 45 to uh, New England and, and score seven. That game, David, it was one of those where I felt it's like when Ohio State would bring in one of these nondescript teams from the West Coast or even a real low-level MAC team. And they could have scored whatever they wanted in that game, New England. Absolutely. And and the thing is that I think, and you've touched on this, this is the first time that you can go beyond X's and O's where there's quite, all right, so let's take a big picture look at this, right? Like there's the X's and O's thing, like should Joe sure. Woods be blitzing more? Should the defense yeah. be playing more press man coverage and try and uh, put the quarterback under a little bit of duress? But there's the larger issue, and I think this is really the first time that this has come up, and it's just like, is Kevin Stefanski and his staff ready to handle the challenge of motivating this team? Because you watch that game Sunday and there were guys out there who just did not show up. I mean, I'm not, I, I tweeted during the game that John Johnson, the third, I thought it was his worst game of the season and pro football focus graded him as probably one of the worst players in the, in the league for that game. He was missing tackles, not even trying, not sticking his nose in there. Denzel mm -hmm. Ward, Denzel Ward, they ran at Denzel Ward a lot and he had no interest in tackling anybody on many of those plays. So Yes, there's X's and O's, but do you think that Kevin Stefanski and his staff have what it take, takes to get this team motivated and get them back playing championship caliber football where they can well, compete for the playoffs? This is where it gets hard because in my mind, I thought when Stefanski came in, I picked them to go like eight and eight. And I think I heard some people nine and seven, seven and nine. I think we're all around there. Just get past Freddie Kitchens, get things organized. Don't be... Um, you know, tough, smart, accountable, play that way. You could, you could be tough, smart, accountable and lose, lose a bunch of games. You know, you, you just sometimes your talent isn't all together or whatever, but uh, you watch the games, you say, okay, um, that, that, was a, that was a good game. They got beat. So, but, so, so ahead, that sorry. was it. So, no, so that, but, but what they did, they jumped over that stage, David, and they went to like the second year, I thought of Stefanski. In other words, that, um, that 11 and five would come this year. 
So you, it's kind of like you'd be gradually moving your way up. Well, they skipped right over 500. They went directly to 11 and five. They went to winning in the playoffs and they went to him being coach of the year and they went to people chanting Super Bowl. And not just fans, but, you know, a lot of the preseason picks had them as a Super Bowl contender, a top four team, all those things for good reason, because they, I remember the entire offense, remember at that point, was coming back. They added players on defense. The team was 11 and five. It wasn't five and 11. They had a bunch of new guys. So there was reason to be very upbeat about that. Now what happens is you're not, you're past the stage where, you get the blessing because you're not Freddie Kitchens and you look a lot more organized than they were during that time to things have not gone as well as you expected. How are you going to handle this? And he's only a second year head coach. I still like Stefanski. I like him long-term and that, but he's never been in this situation where the criticism is coming at him. Like now nothing close because he'd only called 19 games at, Minnesota as a uh, offensive coordinator. So, and then last year, everything was the key thing for happened last year. Remember they got blown out the opening open year in Pittsburgh and then they went four in a row. So he's four and one right away. And that just gave him credibility. Um, and oh, it was Baltimore. They all lost in the open Baltimore. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. No, right. And yep. then when that's correct. And that's a good point. And then when they were, well, then they had that big bad game at Pittsburgh, they turn around, they beat Cincinnati the next week. That's when Odell got hurt and they started just, cook again and then i remember there was a loss to the jets in there and when everybody was sick there was a loss to like a a, a tornado on the on the lakefront to i think it was new Orleans, not new orleans uh, las vegas uh so you can even in other words you look at the games they lost okay they lost but it isn't like this feeling of this year of boy and you didn't get any of the players talking about game plans or any of that stuff like you've had yeah, and, and uh, the the it's interesting the parallels you can draw between if let's talk about Baker Mayfield for a minute. All right, mm-hmm. so you're talking about the team last year, kind of a growing process and the ex- yes. expectations coming into this year. The same thing with Baker, right? Last year people mm-hmm. saw a different Baker in the first half of the season versus the second half of the season. The second half they had the bye week, they were able to change the offense a little bit, change what they were doing with Baker, and he had a great second half. Now the big expectations going into this year. And you watch the game Sunday and the lack of downfield passing. There's like two options here. And Doug LaMaurice, our colleague, pointed this out on our Orange and Brown Talk podcast earlier this week. Either Baker is hurt and and can't make the throws and the plays that they want him to and it's limiting the offense, or he is able to make those throws and plays and they're not being made because they're not calling the right plays or or he's just just not making the plays because he doesn't want to throw the ball down the field because he doesn't think he can make the throws so like either of those options is not good um and it is it's very parallel to to the to the plight of the browns here Mm -hmm. over the last season and a half and um when you look at baker mayfield how much evaluation can you do of him given the injury and the way the offense is playing right now well the blessing is you got him under contract next year so you don't you just wait that's all this is a just wait i know they're going to play him this week I probably wouldn't. If I can't beat the Lions with Case Keenum, I'm in huge trouble anyway. Let's see if you can get him healthy. Er, I'm not sure he's going to be totally healthy, but healthy. Er, today he just said he's feel this is the most he's been beat up in his career, uh, and he has. Now remember, in that Bengals game, he made a couple of long throws. That's only two weeks ago, not two months ago, right? 
so he was able to get it downfield then, but it just looked to me like um, he just he's not moving well. You know, part of him too is to be able to do those rollouts and, and especially that thing where he kind of would roll left and then turn and throw back the other way. I don't know how much the shoulder impacts that, but I'm sure it does some. Because I was thinking about it, we've had the um, he's had contusions on both knees. Remember, he had this bad foot thing. That was a couple of weeks ago. So we got a foot, we got two knees, and we got a double whammy on his left shoulder with the torn labrum and whatever that stress fracture or non-displaced fracture thing. He's beat up. Well, and it is. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Are they not doing creative stuff offensively because they don't Mm -hmm. want to leave Baker back there for three or four or five seconds, or is it the other way around? They're not leaving him back there for three, four or five seconds because you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like chicken and egg questions. I I go back to that Bengal game. He did throw downfield a few times in that game. He did. And against New England, I couldn't tell what they, after that first um, series, which everything looked great. I have no idea what they're trying to do the rest of the game. They got away from the running real quick. Um, and Kevin did fall into the habit too of, of, of coaches, not just young ones. I've seen older ones too. If you, the running game is what you're good at, even if you get down 10 points or whatever it is, and it's not the fourth quarter, just run the ball for a while. Get, get the confidence in your offense back. Give your defense time to uh, to rest and uh, just see if you can get some good feeling in your team back. But he was he was throwing it. But as you said, it wasn't really what going downfield. Just wasn't wasn't going much of anywhere. This is not, I know, high level X's and O's analysis, but it's just watching the game in the same way. And you you jumped on it first with me. I just thought it was weird. And then you when you, after the game, you sent me a note about uh, to all his work. Stefanski was asked, I think by Tony Grossi, uh, how did you rate your uh, effort of your team? And he said, well, when you get blown out like this, it's hard to tell. You kind of got to go and look at the film. And I'm like, no, you could tell real quick. I can't tell you what happened on some of these big broken plays who went wrong, but you walk out of a stadium or you turn the TV off. You have a feeling whether the team played pretty hard or not. For example, they lost 15 to 10 at Pittsburgh. I thought they played hard. Didn't play particularly smart or whatever, but it was a it was a brawl on both both sides. It, it really was. And by the way, that was a game. Remember, Tom won even afterwards, so they just stacked the line and said, "See if you could throw it." Right. Well, and you know, having just watched the Browns play, Bill Belichick, they talk about Bill Belichick being the master of details and caring about every little thing. I've seen him break down video where he says, hey, look at the way our guys are celebrating after this big play. Look at this big play. Everybody came over to to congratulate him on this knockdown. Look at how into the game we are, how much energy we have. Like, he cares Mm -hmm. even about that stuff. And you did not see any of that from the Browns. And I know they were losing, but even early in the game when there's, you know – a defensive play, they just didn't bring – they just didn't bring – There was like the sense of doom was over them in that game. Yeah. They weren't going to come back. And – I'll say something else. I've written this a couple times already. When a coach keeps saying after the game, well, we were out coached or whatever, after a while, players are going to go, yeah, you're right. And you got that from John Johnson to a lesser degree and more from Miles Garrett. Yeah, we didn't make adjustments. Yeah, we, you know, okay. And 
I, I know that coaches do that, so they say it's not always pointing the fingers at the players. But that would have been a game afterwards to say the coaches didn't do a good job, players didn't do a good job. But the thing that bothered me the most, especially in the second half, our effort stunk. Yeah, point, the, point the thing at something that uh, is very tangible and that the fans know, even if you're doing behind Colstro, let them know that you're not putting up with it. And so I, that, and that's something you can build on for the next week. Then. Yes. Right. I, and I expect next week when we play Detroit, we got, you know, beyond X's and O's, how are we playing? Are we playing like a team or that? What happened to that team the week before? We can't be like that team that gets down, you know, because Cincinnati, they were all over the place. And, I, and I, I still say they played hard against Pittsburgh. They had problems, but they played hard against Pittsburgh. Because, um, by the way, if you don't play hard against the Steelers, even as beat up or whatever they are, they will maul you to, to use the – I jumped on that word. That was, that was the word that uh, uh, Miles Garrett said before they played the Patriots. That, you know, you got to watch out because they'll maul you. And I'm like, I always like that word maul, M-A-U-L. Never really saw it. Well, we saw it. That's what happens. They manhandle you. And so if you aren't – that's the thing about the NFL, especially these teams are playing now where they're all fighting for playoff spots. If you're not ready to go physically, they will maul you. What we just saw, you will get embarrassed. All right, so we got to touch on two more things here. I want to talk about the wide receivers for a minute, and then I know you want to talk about the defense. So uh, look, look at these numbers um, about the Browns' offense before we get into the wide receivers. The Browns lead the league in yards per carry at 5.3. Not surprising, right? Mm-hmm. They're 22nd in passing yards. They're 27th in passing touchdowns. They're 26th in passing yards per game. And when they pass on third down, they're converting 30.9 of those into first downs. And that's 26th in the NFL. So when they throw on third down, they're they're performing at a rate that's 26th in the NFL. Um, our colleague Scott Patsko wrote an interesting article the other day where he was looking at the wide receivers and why they can't get the ball to the receivers. The Browns are last in the league in targets to wide receivers, not even mm-hmm. completions, just targets. And the other day against the Patriots through three quarters, the Browns fell behind 31 to seven. The through up to that point, the wide receivers had accounted for six of the 20 throws that yeah, happened. I think they Only had one catch by the and way, four of them went to Donovan people's Jones in the first half. And Baker Mayfield was one of six throwing to wide receivers before he left the game in the third quarter. So not I only remember, are they, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Terry. I was, was going to say, not only are they not, not only are they not getting production, they're not even throwing the ball to these guys. Mm-hmm. Now they did try a fair amount of three tight ends and that stuff, but nonetheless, um, they didn't throw the running backs much. It's just, I don't know. So how do you fix that? Do you change well, the formations? Cool, here, no, here's the cool. Here's the yeah. cool thing about football. It's not like baseball where you say, all right, I really would like Jose Ramirez to bat nine times a game. You know, no, he's stuck in a batting order. This is like basketball to an extent. I want, you know, Darius Garland to shoot the ball a lot more than, you know, whoever, Dylan Windler. Well, you, you can set it up this way. And in football, I want the ball to go to my receivers more. So therefore, on our progressions, our first two options are going to be to Save it, David. The wide receivers. (laughs) You have the option of doing that. It isn't like, okay, I've thrown once to Jarvis. Now I got to wait eight more plays to throw to him again, like in baseball. 
this to me is sort of elementary. If this is what you want, and you could you could tie in two wide receivers as options. You could have Peoples Jones going deep and and uh, Jarvis at a short to medium route. Um, that kind of stuff. You know, they've lost somewhat, although he stunk in this game. Uh, Najoku, you know, remember earlier in the year, he was a weapon. I like how he dropped the ball and then tried to claim he had it in the end. So I remember that he's waving his arms around. And I really had it long enough. I really, uh, he had nothing. Um, so it's, it, it's an, it's an odd situation. I do agree. I don't know who said it, but boy, they, they miss Kareem Hunt a lot too, because he is a guy that they would throw the ball to. I think he's, he still might lead the team in touchdown catches. Yeah, I think you're right. Yep. And um, so, because they did build, you know, he was such a unique player. To me, he was both a slot receiver and a running back, depending on, on how they wanted to use him. And then he would he was a bullish fullback when he caught the ball. He was a unique player. And, of course, look, Chubb, Chubb scares the heck out of everybody there. So, and I, they were, they were undermanned. In New England. And I picked New England to win that game because of that, although I thought it would be kind of an ugly game. But be, to, to hit on your point, when you don't show up physically to play New England, they will maul you. And it's 45 to 7. And it could have been 67 to 7. I mean, Brian Hoyer's out there doing Tom Brady stuff. <laughs> and I love, we all love Brian, but you know, uh, how Brian, 35 years old or something? By the way, I remember when he signed with New England again, it was like 2019 or 20 in the offseason. I can't forget which. So I called up uh, uh, Chuck Kyle, Chico from Ignatius for talking. And in passing, he says, well, you know, Brian's had an amazing career. He's made a lot of money. So I looked it up. At that point, it was like $15 million he's made playing in the NFL, an undrafted guy out of Michigan State from St. Ignatius. So not hey, bad. it's a great country for some of us. One of the best jobs in America, backup quarterback, yep. right? Um, all right, let's talk about the defense real quick. Uh, you know, we talked about the effort. I got the sense, and who knows, right? We're not in the, in the meeting rooms there, but I got the sense that the players were like, if we're going to go down like this, I'm not, I'm not playing hard today. That was the sense I got from some of the guys on the defense. Do you think this is fixable, and what do you want to see this defense do more under Joe Woods? Well, there, there's so much dramatic change from week to week in the NFL. I mean, Buffalo goes and loses to Jacksonville. I mean, crazy things happen. I mean, we, we've had what just recently we had Baltimore got beat by Miami. Uh, Cincinnati cut a break because they didn't play last week. The Browns got embarrassed in New England and Pittsburgh. I know they didn't have Ben, but they couldn't beat Detroit. Guys couldn't kick field goals and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So you do get that. But um that bothered me just like you, the way the defense just completely collapsed and the missed tackles. Cause one thing early in the year, and there were a lot of stats to back this up. They were not missing a ton of tackles. They weren't. Uh, I haven't looked at it lately, but the eye test is bad uh, on that. So I don't, I'm not, I don't know enough strategy other than that. Seemed like New England did a couple of things. They ran those, those jet sweeps, you know, with the receiver around there. That confused everybody. They threw a screen pass like the defense has never seen it before. So a little misdirection, a little bit allowing the pass rush to go. I remember um, before the game, Belichick's press conference, which I wrote this, my scribbles about, he was really praising the Browns defense, but he kept talking about how aggressive they were, how quick they were and all that. And all that's correct. And he used it all against them. 
Because remember, Belichick does the defense there. Right. They don't have. They don't even have a defensive uh, coordinator. I think he and his sons are doing the defense actually, and then uh, 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 Josh McDaniels does the offense, and so Belichick actually kind of looks at the opposing defense through the same lies of, of that. And I'm sure he and uh, McDaniels are talking, and he's probably saying, "Josh, man, they're just." They just react to everything first. If we could just get some misdirection here, just, you know, dig in your bag of tricks for all those plays because these guys could get fooled. Yeah. Because I, I heard that's sometimes how Bill does. Sometimes it just kind of give a general idea to his offensive coordinator on what he sees. And, you know, and then you lets got, him run with it. Yeah, yeah. You got all, you got all the, you got all the toys, you know, let's just do the, let's do the trucks and airplanes today, you know, whatever it is. Out of, the, yeah. out, of the, out of the big toy box. So th- this is what I think is happening this week. I think the players are telling Joe Woods and the defensive coaches, listen, we want to fly around. We want to blitz. We want to cover more in man-to-man. I mean, you are talking basketball earlier. Yeah. And in, in, when you play a zone defense in basketball, who's responsible for rebounding? Like whoever happens to get yeah. the rebound, right? Whoever's when you're in man-to-man, there, yeah. man man, you got a guy, and if your guy gets the rebound, it's your fault. And I think the Browns – and I don't have this. I didn't have time to look at the stats, but I think they they want to play more, man. I think the players want to play I more, do. man. You see Denzel Ward at his best when he's playing hard, mm-hmm. tough man-to-man press coverage. And I think Sunday and probably for the rest of the season, we might see the Browns playing more man-to-man so. and more blitzing. Um, it's going to be a little tricky with Troy Hill um, being out because he was one of their better blitzers. But you know, JOK is back. I think mm-hmm. they're going to they're going to there's going to be some creative blitzing happening here the next few weeks. And I think we're going to see more press man coverage. That's just my suspicion. I think the players like to play that way. So we'll see. And also they did it against Cincinnati. Remember Cincinnati, even when Burrow was making some good throws and guys were that defensive back was in the picture all the time on the replay. You know, I was in Cincinnati, but then I would go. The cool thing about being at a game in a press box, you're ahead of the TV. So you see it live first, then you could bang, go to the TV in a press box. In fact, it's always why I try to sit in the second or third row. It's a better view of the TV in a press box. And then you're on it. And I'm going, these guys are covering. Now in New England, <laughs> I don't know what was going on. I just. Well, part, part, before the Bengals game, all they heard about all week was Jamar Chase, Jamar Chase. And yeah. I think I think as a player, you take that personally. If stopping one guy, you go to New England, it's like, oh, they just have a crew of guys. And so so yeah, like well, there's no there's no personal challenge there. Maybe that was it. I don't know. But I don't know. We shall see. All right. Big two weeks coming up for the Browns. Lions on Sunday, as we mentioned. And then they've got Baltimore on Thanksgiving weekend in a Sunday night game. And then they have the bye. And then they have Baltimore again. So. Three big games here that can really swing the division. Uh, two against Baltimore and one against the Lions on Sunday down at First Energy Stadium. We want to take a break here, Terry, and we'll come back and talk a little Cavs and a little Guardians. Okay. All right. We will be right back on Terry's Talking. All right. We're back on Terry's Talking. Terry, let's talk some Cavaliers. Cavaliers are off to a surprising start. They're one of the probably the best stories in the NBA this season. And, and, they've kind of come upon this formula that's really working for them so far, even with the injuries they've had. And they, they did it after the first two games of the season. Remember they gave up 142 and 130 points. Um, and I've always not bought totally into the run and gun and jack up against at threes style of the NBA. Cause you have to be really good to play that way. And you have to still at some point play some defense, which made the uh, Warriors so good over the years is when they were had those elite teams with Steve Kerr. And they're starting to do it again, I may add. They were in the top five defensively, too. 
you know, uh, in terms of opponent's field goal percentage, three-point percentage, whereas if you're just thinking about run and gun, you don't you don't defend. And, and if you're not, you don't have the same talent as those. Well, they try to play that way early in the year. Kobe Altman actually has talked about wanting to play that way. J.V. Bickerstaff's uh, career as a coach, and especially if you go back to uh, – uh, like when he was in Memphis, and that was more of what we see big guys defensive-oriented. Well, I think he took a look after those first two games because I'm not going to win a game this way. And so the big line, if you can't play a big lineup, well, you got to play a little slower. And I think he's taking it to extremes because uh, he loses Sexton, he loses other people, and it works for them because hardly anybody else is playing this way. And it throws them off. It's like playing Navy in football or something. Yeah, were, it yeah. is. You know, it's a gimmick thing. It's not going to go anywhere. But the, the, and also it was really built around Mobley and Allen. And now the difficult thing is Mobley's out two to four weeks um, with this elbow thing. I don't, Allen, I guess, doesn't have the virus, but he's sick. But when they had those two guys, the young athletic guys who were enjoying that, and then it's like, I barely remember when Markkinen was out there. I mean, I know he was for several of those games early, but he's been, I guess, Markkinen and Love are fairly close to coming back. But it, it's a shame because I think at some point you'll get those guys. But Mobley, the whole team was was uh, kind of working off of his energy. They had keep these stats now, contested, stop, excuse me, contested shots in the NBA. He was number one. I think Allen was number one in dunks. No, Mobley was number three because when they, when they would take their time and set up the offense, these guys are getting lobs or they're getting offensive rebounds. They're just slamming it in because they're bigger than everybody. And they're still, they're not big lumbering guys. They're big athletic guys. Yeah. And the thing about the defensive slowdown approach is, you know, if a guy, if one guy's out one night and one guy's out another night, you still have that defensive foundation. I know not having Mobley there is going to be a big change for people, but having relying on three guys to score 25 points is one thing. Having a defensive mindset and a defensive system can be there every night, regardless of what yes. the lineup is. So that's, that's one th- good thing they have, but now the tough thing is it's hard to win and they won some games this late, um, not even scoring a hundred points. Which, when's the last time you saw that, right? Yeah, you got to remember um, the way the NBA has. I think the average team is scoring slightly under 110. So in the old days, it's like we well, want you need to score 100 to win. You know, um, that's really good. And now it's really you need to score 110. So if you but if you're trying to win like at 98, then they won some games that way. But they're I don't know what's going on with Sexton, other he's got a knee problem. At some point, you know, they're going to have to address that. But they miss him. They do. They do. Um, going back to the defense real quick, I just wanted to mention the some of the numbers here behind it. They've gone from being one of the worst defensive teams in the NBA the last couple of years. Right now, they're only allowing 101.1 points per game, and that's second in the NBA mm-hmm. to Denver. Denver's at 98.9. And opponents are making only 39.1% of their shots from the field against the Cavs. That's 13 wow. in the NBA. Yeah, which is a dramatic. I mean, you know, the last two years, those numbers were way, way different than mm-hmm. what we're seeing now. So I'd be curious to see what they are in threes um, defensively. But the last I looked, they're middle of the pack and defending the three pointer. They're still that's there. Big, yeah, they're right. They're that's right a big, there still. But they, that's fine, you know. And the, the number, if, see, I would throw out the first two games. Because they were playing a different style. You go from there, they're probably under 100 points a game. And you just would see that this is – he's got a formula here that will make them uh, 
decent if they could just keep uh, these guys reasonably healthy. Yeah, one one positive for the Cavs, they do have a pretty good stretch of home games here. They're not on mm-hmm. the road, you know, taking a West Coast swing or anything. But just real quick, tonight, Wednesday, they're home. They're at Brooklyn, but then they're home tomorrow night, Thursday night against Golden State. And then they have a nice break till Monday. They're play, playing Brooklyn at 7 on Monday. Then they're home Wednesday against Phoenix and home on Saturday of Thanksgiving against Orlando. So it's nice when you have... You are at home, some tough teams. Yeah, you're home. And also that when you're little break up. there until after Monday. Uh, will hopefully allow them to get marketing and love back there together. Um, and so that, um, and I'd be curious to see, you know, Kevin, Kevin's stats weren't great, but remember we talked about, is a guy playing hard or not? I thought love was playing hard coming off the bench. I really did. He was getting he a lot of engaged. Rebounds. He looks yes. engaged. He Even when he's on it. the bench, he's cheering guys he, on. He is. Yeah. He looked, he looked into it. And I think also the slower pace, helps him because he's not well he never was tremendously athletic to begin with but um now that he goes down he gets set up he's got rubio actually knows how to throw the ball somebody to post that helps because that's that's a lost art in the nba and the only, one concern i have they're playing rubio a ton of minutes for a guy i think it's his 13th year or whatever that's that's a lot to ask but what a what a pickup kobe altman had a really great off season with rubio and mobley being the, the key two yeah, I mean, everybody was talking about Rubio maybe being sixth man of the year, and he might be. He yeah, might, it's a start he's, now, he's not, yeah. He's not, he has to start now. So, all right, let's talk some Guardians real quick. It's hot stove season, as you know, and mm-hmm. uh, our colleagues Paul Hoynes and Joe Noga are going through the entire 40-man roster each day. If you want to check out uh, on the site and on their podcast, on the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast, they're breaking down one guy in depth every day. Uh Terry, looking at this offseason, what, what's something you'd like to see them do that would make a difference when they open against the Royals in March? Well, everybody talks about outfitters, and they always want this you know guy that's going to hit 30 homers or whatever. They're not going to get that guy unless it's some young guy on the rise like they got with uh, Fran Mel Reyes. But can they find another version of Miles Straw out there? A guy who's a pretty good player who maybe he's been playing, you know, 400 at bats somewhere for another team and get him in here. And they need two guys in the outfield who play just about every day. You just can't keep doing with one and a cast of thousands, which they've done for quite a while. And then that would really help, um, you know, things going forward. But look what straw did top of the lineup, play great center field. Uh, We're not saying he has to be Kenny Lofton. But he's, you know, he, it took care of the position. When I last time they had made Terry Francona um, uh, available to us, I asked about the lineup and straw. And then he always says, well, you, you don't expect me to make out, uh, you know, my lineup now in, 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 in November. I said, yeah, but you could probably make out a couple spots. He goes, well, we got straw in center. He could bat lead off. Exactly. That's what you want. And you got Jose, he could bat third and, you know, Reyes fourth, or, you know, you've got, you've got some stuff there. I mean, you might want to throw Bradley in there. You'll live with the strikeouts, but it'll hit some home runs. But when you go the rest of the outfield, you go through this, you know, the suspects of Mercado and Zimmer and, you know, Naylor coming off this horrible leg fracture. Uh, it's not, it's not real exciting to there's none of those guys. I say, well, I really want to see them. There's some younger guys maybe coming up through, through the minors, you know, uh, uh, Oh my goodness. There's a, a guy I wrote about and uh, Quan, Stephen Quan, 
who, who came up from double A, played at Oregon State. Uh, he's a guy maybe mid-year. Uh, Placios, I know I'm getting the guy, Stephen Placios. He played at Towson. I'm getting his name. I'm butchering his name. But these guys are not probably ready to start the season. So they need one more. See, if you get one more guy, then you could just a regular player. Then you could kind of sort through the rest for the other outfield spot. And people say, well, you could put Reyes out there. Well, if you put Reyes out there, then you need a DH. You still need another real guy. So my goal is to find a real guy with a bat that can play the outfield. How's that? <laughs> that sounds good to me. And, you know, the, uh, everybody talks about Miles Straw and how good he is defensively. If you get some continuity in the outfield, yes. you know, baseball is a game of inches, and these guys are going into the gaps for balls, the communication. Mm-hmm. If you have the same guy next to you every day, that makes a big difference when it comes to getting balls in or, or tracking balls down or communicating, you know, the little stuff like that. It matters. Um, Remember early in the year, the, the outfield defense was an abomination. It was embarrassing. They, they're mm-hmm. missing cutoffs. This guy goes out there, and then they, they played Zimmer quite a bit there or Mercado, one or the other. And no matter who the third guy was, all of a sudden it was pretty good. Yep. And he and he was terrific in center because it was the same guy in center all the time. And the well, other guys know he's in center. So when he calls, get out of his way. He's really old school. It seems like he hardly says anything. He just sort of goes out there and plays. I mean, he I really he's like a baseball him. player in the true yeah. old school sense. So can never have too many of those guys. So they, they got one. They need another real guy with a bat to play the outfield. How's that? That's my scouting report. Let the analytics go to work on that one. There you go. All right, Terry, let's talk about your faith column this week. The holidays are coming and it's a tough time for a lot of people who've had uh, recent losses in the family. And, and this week you're uh, writing about how suicide in a family can make it even tougher time of year for people. Um, why don't you talk for a minute about that column? And kind yeah, of it came you... from a, uh, and I'm talking to somebody here. Maybe there's some of us listening, if either have a friend or a family member or know that to be very aware, because it's like, it's comforting in some ways to say, boy, grandma, you know, this is the first uh, Christmas we've had without grandma. You know, she finally died, you know, after all that battle with the stroke and this and that. But when someone dies from suicide, um, it's, it, it's just things that people don't want to talk about. It's so painful and there's a lot attached to it. And that came from a letter from a guy that uh, talked about how he still thinks about his son's death from suicide and, and this many years later and, and kind of how it, he's got finally past blaming himself. And so I, I kind of started thinking about it and I knew that uh, two people I admire had lost and they're good, you know, quote unquote, good people who had lost uh, children to suicide. One is Rick Warren, who wrote Purpose Driven Life, a well-known pastor, kind of this generation's Billy Graham. Uh, out in California, wrote, and uh, I've used some of his stuff in my columns. His son, Matthew, a few years ago. Um, how about this? They, his son had battled depression his whole life, uh, but they had gone out to dinner with him the night before. He and uh, Rick Warren and his wife had a great time. The next day, they got a call that something was up in Matthew's house. They went there, and he had uh, um, shot himself. Uh, Tony Dungy, Hall of Fame coach, all that. Um, his son hung himself three days before Christmas, 18 years old. Matthew was 30 some years old. It's in a lot of families. Now, both of those guys have really gone out of their way to speak about, you know, the pain of this Tony Dungy, which I didn't realize until I looked it up. He has 10 kids. They've adopted eight kids. They're either regular adoptions or foster kids. So they've had all kinds of kids. And 
but it, it's in almost every family. And I just wanted to, one of the things I wanted to say is it's not your fault. And I talked to uh, a friend of mine who's, who's expert in grief. His name is Bishop Joey Johns from, from Akron House of the Lord. He's a certified grief counselor and wrote a book called God and Grief. And he said, that's the thing. People, I say, well, I could have, if I'd only been there, this wouldn't have happened. You can't be with somebody 24-7. You just can't. And so this is designed, one, for us to be sympathetic to those in family. You know, if they want to talk about it, don't just shut it down. Let them talk. Or in our own family, for some of us to say, it's not your fault. Yeah, and kind of with the holidays coming up, it's a, we'll be spending more time with family. It's a yeah. sometimes it's a good time to have these kind of conversations and reach out and just especially and, someone close yeah. to you. Yeah, right. And if not, kind of let them decide. And that, and that, by the way, the grief counseling people they call it. And when someone starts to open up, it's called be a heart with ears. In other words, and uh, so other people say, you know, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You know, listen twice as much as you talk. But that's especially true there. Because uh, sometimes they, they want to vent and that. And, and instead of telling them, you know, in the middle when they're saying I should have done this or that, and you can see the tears coming. Sometimes just give them a hug. Don't even just try to just just give them a hug. Yeah. Gesture can say more than words a lot of times. That's that's so true. So. Uh, so that'll be in the paper on Sunday and it'll be on yes. Cleveland.com Saturday. So be sure to check that out. Um, certainly timely for this time of year. So. All right, Terry, you put up on your Facebook page a solicitation for some Hey Terry questions. Okay. So we have grabbed a few here. And with your Hey Terry request, you put a picture of Eric Mangini, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> Looking was, in pain, by the way. He was 10 and 22 with the Browns when he was their head coach. And uh, you got some funny wisecracks from people about Eric Mangini. So um, I think I have a trivia question about Eric Mangini later that you might know the okay. answer to. So we'll see. All right. Our first question is from Kathleen Thompson, who I know is a longtime reader of yours. Yes. And she says, hey, Terry, since Colin Sexton is going to be out for a while, who's going to provide the scoring for the Cavaliers? Well, she should be sitting in the meetings with J.V. Bickerstaff and the rest, because that's probably what they're doing. I think what they were, were doing is building uh, more and more plays in the offense for Mobley. But now he's gone. But see, Cowan. What, what I liked, what was happening, too, is even though he was, quote, unquote, starting, if you notice, he would get pulled fairly early, and they would go to Rubio and Garland, and then he would bring Colin off the bench to do his scoring. And I wonder the last week to 10 days, he remember, he was not playing well at all. I think that knee had been bothering him for a while before this finally uh, uh, hit where they, they shut him down with the meniscus. So, uh, Kathleen, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, until Mobley comes back. Now, hopefully the other person is when he started for the Bulls, even last year, which was an up and down year, marketing averaged almost 18 points a game. So if you can get him back and get him some more shots where he just doesn't stand there and shoot threes from, you know, Summit County, I mean, get him more involved, not just these long threes. He can score some more, but it's a good question and it's a big problem. <laughs> Yeah, and they're going to have to find maybe a little bit from everybody. Maybe it's not yeah. one guy. Maybe it's, uh, you know, right. each but that's guy like, is getting, yeah. Yeah, but the Mobley thing coming on, on the heels of that, that's tough. Yeah, tough, tough situation they're in for sure. So, all right, this one is from John Murphy. He says, hey, Terry, we kind of touched on this earlier, but hey, Terry, have the Browns players lost faith in the coaching staff? It sure looked like it on Sunday. Um, it's a pretty direct question of what we've been kind of talking about earlier, but do you think they've lost faith or is it just kind of uh, – 
I, I, the I adversity don't think of an NFL season. I think it's the adversity. Um, but I do think that the coaches have to show them. I mean, one thing you would do is I would pull my defensive leaders in the room, and maybe they've done this, and say, all right, what adjustments do you see? It was interesting when I was writing in the press box in New England, and I forgot which player it was, but it's a newer defensive player that the Patriots added this year. And he was being, you know, they have the interviews kind of in the background, you're typing, it's piped in with the home team. And the guy says, you know, the surprising thing is uh, uh, Bill will ask us during what are you seeing out there? What are you seeing? And he goes, that took me back. He goes, he really does. And he listens. He goes, doesn't always do it, but he's listening. So and you this think is those really discussions good... might be happening out in Berea this week. They better be. <laughs> Get Miles and John Johnson and these guys in there. And you say, what do you see? All right. What do you see? I think they're probably happening to an extent, but I think now make them get more ownership of this. Yeah. And I, I do think you might see a different team out there Sunday. Well, on, de- on defense, especially. So, all right, Terry, last one. This one is from Fritz Johnson. He says, shouldn't Stefanski give up the play calling? And how about firing Joe Woods? Well, I mean, one number one is I don't even know on the defensive staff who you would give it to. Let's 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 be very practical. Um, none of those guys. Maybe there's some of these younger guys uh, would be a person you might go with, but there's nobody there. It's not like if you know the Browns have so much depth on their offensive staff. Say because Alex. Uh, Van Pelt's called plays. Bill Callahan's been a bit head coach. He's even called plays in different places. They don't have a they don't have a Van Pelt or a uh, Callahan sitting there on that staff. As for switching to play calling, I don't know, David. What do you think? I I, I sometimes think. Well, I you're talking about Belichick being collaborative, and I think Kevin yeah. Stefanski is a collaborative guy. But I, I do too. I, I think all the fun has gone out of this offense. Yes. There's no creativity. It's we're going to go out in 13 personnel with three tight ends, and we're going to try and run the ball and throw 20 yards up the field to the tight ends or 10. You know, and I think they need to kind of get a creative spark and rethink about the tools they have and how to deploy them. Um, the, the, and just, I, and it, I it was so predictable it, last week. It really yeah, was. And I also think too, when you're, when you talk about that, you do have a front office in play and they probably got like just the real basic, we were doing, you know, one in one math, uh, one plus one is two math, just to look at how the receivers are not getting the ball. They have all kinds of breakdowns on where the passes are and aren't going and everything else. And, and I'm sure Dee Podesta and Andrew Barry, uh, see all that. And remember, Barry was a very good player. He was all Ivy League as a defensive back, and he tried out, I forgot whether it was Washington or Baltimore. I mean, this is not just some guy, you know, who was great with numbers and hidden in an office somewhere with an Ivy League pedigree. I mean, he was a real football player. Kevin was a, was a very good, he was an all Ivy League football player. So these guys got to know what's wrong. And, and I, I just can't, I'm with you. I, I expect quite a few different things against Detroit. Detroit's not very good, but also the fact is in the NFL, if you're not with it, you're playing dumb or you're not playing hard. Like the Steelers probably kind of played dumb against <laughs> Detroit, you know, uh, look what happens. You tie them. And if you're not with it and you're Buffalo, you can get beat by Jacksonville. 
I was thinking about this earlier today. The uh, Dolphins' record of the undefeated season will probably never be broken oh. because with with a 17-game schedule now and just as demanding as it is to to win every week, I can't ever see a team going undefeated. But uh, that's a discussion for another day. Would so. you? No, would you? Would you play um, Keenum Sunday? I would. Yeah. Because um, I think what you said earlier is right. I think they can beat Detroit with him, and I think the ball will be coming out fast. There won't be any injury concerns. They can run what they want. Mm-hmm. And, but you saw against Denver, they went out and played it. They won it ugly. I liked how they played that game. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, uh, as a quarterback, it's good to just step back and be able to watch it and and not have to be in the heat of battle. Uh, and I think that might serve Baker well. So yeah, and this decision, is not so. to question Baker's toughness. This guy plays through a lot more than most quarterbacks. Absolutely, and that, that could actually work against you. Yeah, and, and he's one of those guys where he wants it so bad that sometimes the coaches yeah. might need to pull him back. So anyway, we'll see what happens there. Um, all right, Terry, I got a Terry's trivia question for you. We mentioned earlier Eric Mangini. You probably know the answer to this. Eric Mangini's brother-in-law is a former Indians executive. Yes. Do you know who it is? It is Mark Shapiro. <laughs> yes, it is. I knew you were going to get that one. It is Mark Shapiro. So. Uh, yeah, I was aware of that. Mangini still lives in the Cleveland area, still is on the east side, by the way. Is that right? Yeah, I know he's, mm-hmm. he's still doing TV for someone. I don't some, remember yeah, who. Yeah, I think he does some consulting. And I think this guy, by the way, talking about defensive coordinators, I think there's a good defensive coordinator sitting on the east side of Cleveland. Yeah, well, I'm sure Whether they have for this, this team or somewhere else. I just – I know – after he left here, he went to San Francisco, but that was before Shanahan and those guys got in there, and it didn't go well. But um, I got to know Eric a little bit. I, I was fairly impressed with Eric Mangini's biggest problem was Eric Mangini, the general manager, uh, when he's trying to do everything. And then when when um, Holmgren came in, um, that wasn't just a Holmgren kept him. It's almost like he was too lazy to hire his own coach at that point. And then uh, it was a bad match after that. And the rest, as they say, is history. So, all right, Terry. Well, it's going to be a fascinating week out there uh, at the stadium on Sunday. Really curious to see what the Browns come back with after Sunday. Um, have a great week. It's going to be Thanksgiving next week. So it came up fast, didn't it? Yes, it did. And we'll be back at this next week. Thanks again, Terry, for your time. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next week on Terry's Talking. Talking.